to DTC Pod, where we take you behind the wheel with the best founders and operators of consumer brands. You'll learn the ins and outs of business from setting up shop, hitting your first million, scaling past eight figures, and even navigating an exit. As founders ourselves, our goal is to help you learn from the best as you build. Visit us at DTCPod.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter, join our founder community, and find additional resources from every episode. DTC Pod is brought to you by Trend, the creative solution for your brand. Go to trend.io to access thousands of creators for content needs such as product photography, unboxing videos, or even TikTok and IG organic creative. Use the code DTCPOD10 for 10% off your next content purchase. Are you curious how much your business is worth? Get your free no obligation offer from OpenStore at open.store. The subscription market is predicted to grow nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is the leading subscription management solution, helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTCPod. What's up, DTC Pod? Today we're joined by Ben Grinnell, who is the head of growth at Level. So Ben, I'll let you kick kick it off. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and uh, the company that you're heading up growth for at Levels? Yeah, so uh, appreciate you having me here and really excited to dig into everything related to growth and experimentation and all the fun things we're doing. But um, been around startups basically my whole life, whether trying to throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks or uh, having some traction with different DTC companies and different, call it sort of like independent things. You just always test, you test, you test, and you see what you can get traction with. And so prior to Levels was part of building an on-demand food delivery company based out of Canada called Skip the Dishes. And we managed to scale to uh, a pretty significant size over the course of five years and ended up going through an uh, acquisition with a company called Just Eat based out of the UK. And then following that, a couple of years later, there was a merger with a company called Takeaway. Um, and so there are tons of learnings as far as like, what is it like to actually build a three-sided marketplace in a very competitive space where you start to think about uh, a pay-to-play opportunity, right? Everyone is shopping for food online based on price, what they get. It's less about, in, in some senses, the experience and more just about uh, retaining customers as best you can because they're going to go to the, like, they'll go to the next lowest price. And so it was a really fun game to play against uh, Uber Eats and DoorDash and sort of be in that space, but lots of learnings. And then I guess it was June of 2020, ended up uh, moving on from Skip and just thought, I'm going to start something again and throw more spaghetti at the wall, or I'll work on something that resonates. And the the heuristic was it had to be something that had a uh, was a global play, so the, it it would apply to anyone in the world, um, and it was something that I, I was deeply interested in, and ended up getting intro to levels from ironically someone uh, based out of Winnipeg, Canada, and somebody that I went to high school with, and he was a seed investor in levels round, uh, the first round, and so he made an intro to Sam Corcos, one of the co-founders and the CEO of the company. And we just started talking about growth. They were looking for somebody to come on board and lead growth and kick things off and really start to build out this infrastructure. And so after a number of conversations, we thought, let's let's dig in together and sort of shook hands virtually on it and started with the team in January of 2021. So it's been just an incredible learning opportunity to be surrounded by the smartest people that I've ever been around. And you feel uh, absolutely humbled and look up with admiration to everyone you're working with and go, like this is an incredible opportunity to just learn and really absorb things. So yeah, it's been really fun. So one thing I'm really curious about Ben is that kind of what you talked about is that, you know, levels had started, they were at the seed, you were introed from um, mutuals that you knew and you came in, right? And I think this is a, a, a pretty common stage for a lot of companies where maybe they've gotten some initial seed capital, they've, uh, and they're they're really looking to start to accelerate their growth motion, right? So what, I, what I'd love for us to chat a little bit about is what did, um, you know, at what stage was levels at when you joined in terms of the growth? And then when you came in, 
you know, what was the first sort of strategy and what was like the inventory uh, and the landscape looking like? So you were like, here are a couple of the first initiatives that we should kind of pursue. Yeah. So it's funny because I love thinking about this and I'm the worst at answering this type of question. It comes up a lot with skip stuff too, where it's like, oh, what was it like at this time? And you just, you, you remember that you sort of remember these little stages like, oh yeah, remember when we were doing like a hundred orders? Remember when we were doing like 10 people a day were like coming through the pipeline and, and it's really easy to forget when things are moving so quickly. So I'm the worst at answering it because time moves so quickly. And so you have to almost like, it sounds ridiculous, but I take like screenshots on my laptop sometimes. I'm like, oh yeah, this like this was this day. Cause you look back, you're like, that was three weeks ago. Um, but yeah, when I came on, uh, Growth was, so I think I was, there were, there were five co-founders of Levels. I think I was the 12th employee in addition. So I think I would have been, we would have been around 17 people when I joined and we didn't have a lot of diligence around growth. It was more a matter of, there was a private wait list to get into the beta. Um, there were some activities that were being done to we'll call it garden that wait list and to keep people warm. But in general, we had a lot of uh, lead capture, a lot of email signups because we'd work with partners like podcasters or affiliates and influencers so that the incentive was go to levels.link slash Jimmy. And you can, or like, let's say a real person, Dave Asprey levels.link slash Dave, and you can get into the beta. And so that was enough incentive for people to sign up. But what that did is if they didn't actually convert, we got a lot of lead capture. So over time we grew our wait list. When I joined I mean, I think we were around, let's say it was around 30,000 people. It was still significant. There were still enough people. And this was shortly after the seed round was announced in the fall of 2020. Um, and had led the round and it, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of awareness sort of like in the tech nerd startup VC yeah, space. There, Cause the, you hear that. The, the product also has a word of mouth component to it because I hosted a Super Bowl party and one of your early adopters was there. His name is Justin Maris um, from, from Kettle and Fire and Perfect Keto. And like he was wearing it. And so everyone was like asking, what is that? And so I noticed like it just spread around internally from that. Yeah. I mean, that's like to digress a little bit that's the nice piece of the flywheels. It's a new product, new experience, but there is some visual cue that gives the the head nod of like the, the Seth Godin, people like us do things like this, where it's like, you're in the club. You kind of like, you know, what's up if you're wearing, and I'm not saying it from a point of hubris. It's just sort of like, that's what people think when they see someone else, we call it levels in the wild. Someone sees the patch on someone else and you give the like head nod. You're like, Hey, you're one of us, right? Because you feel like you're part of this club and it still happens to this day. And so there was a lot of UGC and a lot of earned media that we would get out of that where people just wanted to show others, like I'm trying to take agency over my own health and like, here's what I'm doing about it. But in doing so, it's like I'm applying the CGM. I'm wearing a patch that uh, gives me some branding or makes me part of a tribe. And so we've thought a lot about that idea of, of tribalism. Um, and that, that really is like the key to building community. Back to everything about the waitlist, like where were we at when I started? We were at around, let's say, 30,000 people. And we, we ended up getting uh, a lot of compounding growth on the waitlist over, we just launched in July of 2022. So it was a couple of years to get to that point, but we were growing our wait list without trying to grow the wait list. If that makes sense, we weren't do, we weren't undertaking, I should maybe say it this way. We weren't undertaking arbitrary tactics to, to just drive traffic and get lead capture for the sake of it. These were people that had some purchase intent of some kind. And we grew at roughly 7% month over month over the course of two years. So when we launched, like our waitlist was at 265,000 people. It's like, that's a significant number of people if they're actually engaged. And so uh, there have been tons of learnings just around how do we understand that those are people that care enough about their health and have some sense of like, I want to learn more about this thing. It's not about trying to target them for conversions. It's about how can we start to educate them about metabolic health so that they can change their behavior without needing to buy levels to feel like they're, um, 
they're making behavior changes in their life. So that's that's the equivalent of product growth for for you guys, right? Because it's sort of embedded into into their lifestyle um, more so than an actual UI or UX that like they're they're interacting with. How what were some of the initial resources that like the soonest you know the number one first resource that you needed when you joined? Were you a team of one when you joined? And what was the first resource that like you you required to have? Yeah, so we had growth ended up being, um, we identified it as these four pillars, members, content, community, and partnerships. And before I joined Tom Griffin, he was one of the earliest employees and he leads partnerships. He was on board. And so we informally started, like it was all part of this growth bucket. We didn't say like, now Tom is like part of the growth team. It was just like, we are all, we all had shovels and we were all digging. So Tom was absolutely a, not just a lever. Like he's been a catalyst for this growth within the company because he is and hat tip to Tom. He, everyone should go check out. He's got a first round piece around this podcast tour um, and some of the partnership initiatives that he's undertaken, but he ran this ninja process of, we're going to get the founders on every podcast possible and ramp up to be higher and higher tiers. So eventually, it's not out of question that could Casey Means or Josh Clementi, two of the co-founders, could either of them get, and this hasn't happened yet, but like maybe it will one day, but could they get on, like would the material they talk about with the education they provide be interesting enough for someone like Tim Ferriss to say, Hey, come on my podcast. If you start to do that, you get the right partners on board. Now, Tim is a partner of ours where he's got the levels out link slash Tim reads, right? And that's an amazing thing. But this was driven by Tom. So Tom was really like the first resource that, uh, not, not only was like conduit for growth to happen, but was also a lever. Like he was an I see individual contributor just hammering work day in, day out. And this this podcast tour that he ran is like a full playbook. And it's that's why there's a first round piece about it. But um between Tom and I, we were we were bouncing back and forth doing all different growth initiatives. So coming together and formulating some ideas around like what would we do functionally? What would our strategy be? How do we um test some of our hypotheses? And then who would the first hire be? And the first people that we brought on board were just growth generalists who could do the same thing, throw spaghetti at the wall, do a lot of experimentation, have some rigor around data, have some uh, right brain thinking around like creative tests that we could do and just say, let's learn, let's learn. So that's really how we've thought about it as we built out the function of growth. Yeah. And it seems like it's still part of your culture. You know, you're still doing a podcast, you're still experimenting with all this stuff. So you mentioned you were all digging and it wasn't, you know, that like, Hey Tom, you're going to do just this, but was there a common KPI or like, you know, were you guys all going after one common KPI Were KPI spread out between teams or did you just scrap that all together? Um, how do you look at KPIs in an early stage, you know, growth team? Yeah, it's, I mean, that's an interesting question because the KPIs are always evolving. So there was a KPI, let's use a podcast here. There was a KPI to get on N number of podcasts. That's the KPI, right? We know that by doing that, that's going to generate a ton of top of funnel awareness. And if we provide some type of link, right, then there's, that provides us more with like bottom of funnel or at least lead capture. Um, So always flexing, like not having such macro KPIs that we lose sight of what we're trying to do. The KPIs can be around, like some, what are some of the other early ones we did? Why don't we talk about ignoring KPIs? Because I think that's also important. Right. One of the things we did was around, we started a podcast that was like one of the first things that we did when, when I joined in. Um, the idea was let's just tell our story as a company so that we can build more engagement in the community. Like let people into the fold to know who we are so that it doesn't feel masked. What ended up happening from that was something that none of us could have forecasted. So we thought our hypothesis was, hey, this is a great engagement mechanism. People will feel they know levels, they'll trust the brand, right? And it doesn't mean that hasn't happened. But what ended up happening ironically, was that it's been a wild lever for attracting talent because people are like, oh, I know Ramon. Like I've heard him on f- like five podcasts. That's really like, 
I'd, I'd be hard pressed to think that's not really him, right? Like you guys do it day in, day out. You understand <laughs> right, that yeah. it's like when you're talking, people, you're capturing an hour of attention or however long an episode ends up being of that person's um, engagement with what you're doing. So people would reach out and they'd be like, hey, I want to work with your team or I feel like I already understand. I know the team. And so it's been just like the coolest thing to go, well, we don't need to really worry about attracting talent from uh, outbound marketing. Like where we really, we have, let's say a recruiter or we have like somebody hitting people ops hard to, to get the right people in the door. It's been just amazing to feel that that, like that builds a lot of trust for our team from like from the first day somebody starts, but back to KPIs. So what we did around that is we said like, this is something we're going to ignore KPIs around because if we only look at the performance of episodes, inevitably we're a company that makes a product in the metabolic health space. And if people want to hear about metabolic health, we could have a derivative health and wellness podcast that is subpar to some of the top performing podcasts initially. Like it, maybe we could get there one day, but initially that's what we'll be. Do we want that or do we just want to sort of like dance or dance and let things happen as they do and ignore the data based on that so we don't start manufacturing episodes that might not resonate with everyone? So we've gone like to the furthest of the long tails to say, what can we like, if it's interesting to any of any team member can host, anyone can do any episode about, I mean, we haven't quite gone to the edge of doing episodes about like dungeons and dragons or anything like that. But like, if we don't need to rationalize it is the takeaway and by ignoring that KPI, that's the mechanism that everyone goes like, I kind of trust you guys. So then we don't need to like focus on the recruiting part. So it's, it's a, it's a matter of like, the KPIs around data are interesting because it's a matter of knowing when to double down and when to say, nah, let's ignore that. Yeah, I mean, we. And this reminds me of a talk that Blaine and I attended to of Keith Raboy, and he mentioned that like he likes scrapping away KPIs because he says, I don't believe in them because you know, you don't get 10x results. You're capping people to thinking a certain way. And like a podcast is a good example that, well, if I have these numbers in front of me, I'm not going to do a podcast. So I kept pondering on this and thinking, well, how do I find the right balance between the two? And the thing that came to mind is separating short-term goal goals versus long-term goals. And so, okay, well then let's split up two strategies. Let's have our short-term targets and then let's do the long-term stuff that we're not seeking immediate returns for, but we know we're going to have huge impact over a longer period of time now the thing that happens is like well thinking through that is like how do you operationally tackle that though especially when you have limited resources and time and a small team how do you do you have you thought through that um you know do you guys have long-term short-term strategies and how, how what tips do you have for potentially you know splitting the time between those yeah i mean so it's a good question because it's it's constant Bayesian updating. So you kind of run an experiment, you see what the results are, and if data is warranted in the experiment, let's let's focus on like when is data when again take this don't take this as the gospel. This is a matter of the way we sort of think about it internally is something related to the funnel to conversions. Data is integral. It's super important. Like you got to understand all that stuff. But data, let's say data related to content where we've got a product that has a very wide footprint. Anyone in the world can use it. Like this is not, I'm not suggesting now anyone can use it. There are lots of issues as far as price point and accessibility. Let's ignore that for a second. Just what technically what the product does. The product can help people to get healthier. Like that is objective. We all want that. And so if we started to go, oh, look, the data is like steering us to people who have, uh, who earn between like X and Y and they fall, like they all live in San Francisco or like on the coast, they're all coastal. Like, let's just double down. Sure. Those are our early adopters. But if you go, Hmm, metabolic health crisis, well, this is a global problem that affects billions of people. Like the people who actually need this product might not be able to afford it. So you're starting to just go down a path where, what do you need to do to make that product accessible? 
And a lot of that comes down to infrastructure. A lot of that comes down to things like price point, getting the product, get more volume out in the market so that you can, over time, start to have lower price points on the constraints that come with accessing it. So um, data can be super important, but it can also get you into some trouble. So we, we think short term, we think about how does, uh, when it comes to Bayesian updating, it might be like, let's test this podcast thing. Assume that we were going to look at a little bit of data and go, we're getting like three people listening and we're investing a whole bunch of time. We give ourselves some target date. If we don't see 10 people listening by this date, let's reassess whether or not we want to do this, right? doesn't matter what the actual number is, the absolute number, but it's sort of what is our target date to reassess and just always questioning, should we be investing our time in this thing or should we invest in some other thing? And so never setting such a long-term goal that is it feels like, oh, we'll reassess whether or not this content's working in a year because it's just too long a horizon. Um, the funnel's super short-term. We're always looking at that. Like where, where are people dropping off? Where's their friction? How can we fix that? That matters. That matters a lot. That is going to help. Like that is the lights are on or the lights are off in a company. But some of the longer-term horizon things, um, especially around how do we make an impact to the metabolic health crisis globally, that's something that we're constantly looking at with a longer lens. And I think one of the things that you're talking about there, um, like even your podcast initiative in, in terms of like starting to scale that up, right? Like there's certain qualitative indicators that might be hard to like pick up in the data. Like for example, you're like, our ultimate goal is to be able to, you know, work with Tim Ferriss, right? But, but before getting on Tim's podcast, before working with him, you may have to like start scaling up all these other podcasts, right? So if you're just mm -hmm. looking at it in terms of a number, like quantifying like real influence, who's listening, distribution, all that becomes really tough. But like from a qualitative side, you guys probably have a pretty good pulse on, oh, we just got on this podcast. This is going to allow us to get on the next one. And mm -hmm. the next one, you kind of trade up the chain that way, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and if you're just looking at data, that's, um, you know, might be tougher to run an initiative like that. You kind of have to just trust your your intuition on that, you know, short and, and know what you're expecting in the short medium term to like lead to that longer term outcome that you said is a core KPI. That's exactly it. I mean, here's a great example of that. So with thought leaders, they all work on social proof, right? It's like, who else is showing up to the party? No one wants to be the first of the party, but if they know that, like, if... What's the probability that somebody that would be at Tim Ferriss's level is also interested if Tim is interested and they're friends? Well, a lot higher than if Tim feels like he's on an island by himself and he's like, none of my friends are at this party, right? Like either I'm ahead of the curve or they know something I don't, right? So it's like, yes, you do have to build. It's all about building the trust and uh, the social proof of what is being done in a, in a genuine way. Like you can't, try to pull the wool over someone's eyes that's just not going to work like people will figure it out pretty quickly right no partner wants to work with people or they're like i don't really trust that brand um so yes that is entirely true now where data is like very interesting and this is where making media buys has to be driven on qualitative intuition qualitative input and quantitative data and sorry initial media buys as much as possible. And let's use partners as the example. If you're going to make a media buy, we can all have a hypothesis that Tim Ferriss is going to convert. And our hypothesis, maybe, we're, maybe we'll disagree, maybe we'll agree. But let's assume for this like example, the three of us agree and we're like, well, people know Tim. He's got a strong following. Uh, he's in our space. He's used a CGM before. Like you've got all those qualitative data points. So then you get a few more qualitative data points well, let's talk with like eight sleep. Let's talk with athletic greens. If they're, if they're willing to open the door and just say like, yeah, we'll give you some insight into like what it's been like as far as performance goes, this is still using other people's data. So where the intuition comes from is like, what data rabbit hole can you go down to not use intuition? Like you can't go much further than that. You don't have data. What you do with the Bayesian updating is like, if you get that partner on board, then you start to say from a data perspective, and this gets to be a slippery slope because of attribution and all those other things. Let's like divorce that from the conversation for now. But you go, you make the buy. And so we've got this hypothesis that let's not use Tim anymore. Just like Jimmy, the, the podcaster is going to do really well. And it's like Jimmy versus Jane. 
and we all hypothesize, hey, Jimmy is a thought leader. What ends up happening is we're like, and I think like Jimmy will do better than Jane. And Jane just starts performing at like 10x. Like that is how, how do you know until you know? And then you can start to make more informed data decisions around the actual performance. But making those initial buys is so, can be so challenging. And that's where you got to use as much qualitative input and intuition to sometimes just like, sometimes you have to jump in and you have to figure it out. And the key is to never give yourself so much exposure that's like, oh, we're going to make a million dollar media buy and like hope this one works out, like cross your fingers. That's a bad strategy. But I mean, depending on budget size, right? But in general, it's assumed that's a bad strategy. But what's not bad is like, let's give this thing a test with a reasonable spend, reasonable allocation, reassess the performance, reassess whether or not that was worthwhile, what was our CAC on that and look at like, do we get a good return? So doing that um, tends to be, it tends to be something that we default to time and time again, mostly because our paid, like anything that we put any spend behind has to do with partnership strategy. One other thing I wanted to mention, just in terms of like thinking like that and looking for those opportunities that are maybe like on the forefront of um, where all the data points to immediately. It seems like there's so many brands that are built like when there's a new like marketing, when there's a shift in the marketing landscape and there's a new channel and people can go in there, right? Like when Facebook happened, there were a ton of brands that were built on the back of just being able to arbitrage the Facebook uh, marketing. Uh, when TikTok started to blow up, there's so many brands that like literally wouldn't have performed on Facebook that just went after TikTok. And even when podcasting first started to blow up, the the brands that moved in first on podcasting and going and going after uh, you know podcasts, I, I know a bunch in the D 2 C space. Even like you would mention Athletic Greens, like they blew up entirely because of their podcast podcast strategy. So um, I just also think it's like really interesting and in being able to kind of suss out like what the forefront of these growth opportunities are because if you're first mover if you're a first mover in that class, you're able to like pick up a massive tailwind. And you're going to lack a lot of data too, if you're a first mover. Um, it's funny enough, I think this also reminds you of like influencer marketing and everything that like within the chaos of all the data, oftentimes the, the you just look at the quality of the content and it's, it's sometimes a better indicator than the data itself of like, are these just followers or real fans that these people have? Well, that's exactly it. And the, the the key is like not having over-reliance on any single channel. I mean, it's not even like, that's not an insightful thing to say at all. It's like, uh, of course that makes sense. Like never, whether it's diversification and portfolio strategy and investing or uh, whether it has to do with, I mean, think about it that way. It's like investing your investing your time in a diversified way, investing your uh, capital as far as how much you have to spend from a marketing perspective, diversifying that is key. Now, like, yes, you don't want to be so loose that you're pursuing a whole bunch of channels and not doing a lot on any of them, but knowing that it is important to diversify so that if there is a significant change like iOS 14, right, and everyone goes like, uh-oh, we got to figure this one out now. Like, that's a really, really bad feeling. Or you heard even, um, gosh, I'm going to forget the timeline because things just move so quickly, but was that Facebook outage last year? The Facebook Instagram, it was last year sometime. Um, but it was like any, any of like any friends that I had that were, uh, pretty, <laughs> pretty deeply invested in meta as a platform. And they're like, I'm dry. What's happening, right? Like that was their acquisition channel where they were just so used to that. You become so reliant on that where it just feels like the power is shut off and that's a really bad place to be. So the idea of diversifying these channels, sure, explore new channels, like go frontier, but also don't get so over-reliant. Like where we would be in real trouble would be if we only relied on utilizing a partnership and a podcast strategy, not for paid, but for acquisition. And we're like, Hey, this thing worked really well for a wait list and like, let's keep going. And we spent, let's ignore the capital. We invested all our time because time equals learning, right? Like how many validated learnings can you get from, that's what like a startup is, is just a bunch of like throwing spaghetti and validated learnings until you get to like scale up and totally different game. But you invest all your time in this and then you're like, oh, we haven't like learned anything about other channels. Like we really got to figure this one out. Things are dry. That's a b very bad feeling because you feel like you're always so far behind versus things not working as well as it used to. 
what if we just double down on that thing over there and start exploring some new land? Like you're just, it becomes just exploration. And that's the key is like being so curious that you can go down all these different paths and then having enough like resources and um, we'll say technical generalists that can sort of do the IC work and explore it at the same time. Yeah, I think I want to use that as a segue to talk about what we were talking about offline, Ben, of like hiring the first marketer. And since you mentioned generalist, one thing I found, I was recently going down this rabbit hole myself of finding our first like director of marketing for Trend. And and there was great resources out there, but nothing was talking about the fact that a lot of people position themselves as professional marketers, but in reality, they are a master of one tool or one vertical. And I was looking at some resumes and everything. I'm like, you're more of an SEO expert than like, I yet don't know what my channel is to hire in a specific vertical. And it can be detrimental to your business if you're like, oh yeah, he's a great marketer. He knows how to run ads. But for some companies, unit economics, like it's it's so early, you still don't know if those channels work for you. So what are some of the flags that you would look for for a marketer to not hire as like your first initial sort of, you know, director of marketing hire or, or head of growth? Yeah, it, it's the, if, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right? Yeah, exactly. And like you might shift your entire business for that. And, and if you tie that to KPIs, you give him these KPIs. Next thing you know, you're shifting your entire business model, your business for this person to hit their KPIs with you know, the hammer that they have. Yeah, it's, and the reason you hire someone is because you default to trust. Like you're trusting when you, when you decide to form a professional relationship with someone, you're giving the nod that says like, I trust you to make this decision. I'm going to de, I'm defaulting to you to figure this one out or to provide the guidance. And so somebody said, hey, Ramon, like we're going heavy and paid. It might not feel good, and you might express why it doesn't feel good, but if somebody said, no, we have to do it, and you're trusting that it's the right thing, but it's because they've got the hammer for paid. Like, all that's all they've ever, that's, I don't want to say all they've ever done. That's where they've spent like 80 plus percent of their time is getting really, really good at that. And like you said, you're hedging, like at that point, you're hedging a lot of risk against that. And if it doesn't work, uh-oh, what do you do? So to your question of like, what are some flags, um, Somebody might position themselves as a generalist, but you start to unpack some of the ways that they think around uh, the work that they've done in the past. And so asking um, some of the questions we ask are like, if you had a million bucks to deploy, what would you do? If somebody answers, I would do like a million dollars worth of paid, it's like, would you do anything else, right? If somebody said, I'd spend a million bucks on content, like how do they think about paid? If somebody said, I'd probably spend a good portion of it on content. I'd start to like double down on some growth engineering stuff. And you start to tell me about that. Like, wh- like what is growth? Like what experiments have you done in the past that are growth engineering related? Just being fully curious, like really wanting to learn. It's not a matter of like, it's a test and you're testing them to give you the right answer. It's just like you work through some of these problems. Like what are some things that we could do from a growth engine perspective right now? And trying to like solve these problems together. And you realize like, Oh, this person is, it doesn't matter whether or not they've got the actual skill set or technical background. It's more a matter of like, do they have the, are they open-minded enough to be curious to like figure this thing out together and go, hmm, they're a pretty curious person. And like, they've done enough unrelated things. Having a lot of unrelated work experience, not like a linear trajectory too, is interesting because they'll, they will think more open-mindedly about this stuff. But those become flags when somebody sort of answers every single question with the same framework and they revert back to like anything related to, let's just use paid acquisition, like performance marketing stuff where you go, we're talking about building a podcast right now. And you're saying (laughs) the way we're going to build the audience is to do paid ads. And you're like, this has nothing to do with that. And and even even more so, I think another red flag I've seen is like they have they may have never even interacted with the product themselves yet. I'm like, are you sure you don't want a demo and like see the product um before answering like what our strategy um should be? I know one of the resources you shared with me a while back, it, they talk I think it was your the person you were talking about from Uber um who said, you know, 
the one of the things to look out for in flags are you know do they even ask how does the product work let me interact with it a good marketer should really want to understand the product before diving into um sort of how are we going to even tackle this totally and and like another another interesting interesting way of framing it is Somebody tests a product and they start giving a lot of product feedback. It has nothing to do with the growth or the marketing, but they're really dissecting like UX, UI stuff. And it doesn't mean like, oh, we're looking for a product expert. It's just like, how curious are they about some of the things where you're like, man, have you thought about, if somebody says something so granular, like, have you thought about the radius of this button on the thing? Like it's little things and you're like, hmm, you're talking in interesting language. You are truly curious about all of these things. Why is that thing hidden in the hamburger menu? Like if somebody says that, you're just like, I actually don't know. I'm not sure. I'm going to ask the product team. I didn't, I didn't even think, you know, it's like, how curious can they make you curious? And you start to like ping pong this stuff that gets really interesting. Um, one of the sort of like unrelated to growth, just general hiring things that has worked well is asking not just, it's like tied into what you're saying about has somebody tested the product asking one question like we've got so much content now saying like hey have you had a chance to check out our content like it would be mind-boggling i mean it, it happens but it would be mind-boggling if somebody goes like i couldn't find anything because there's like the blog the podcast youtube like you name it there's like a lot of information out there everywhere the, like this year alone it's kind of comical uh just did looked into it because again not anchoring on data for certain things we decided to spend more time on growing youtube this year and so we had we didn't do anything like last year we started, I guess it was like August. Um, and we just trickled in videos and we're like, yeah, January will hit the gas. So between August and January of 21, sorry, August, August and December of 21, we generated like 20,000 impressions and we had like 2000, no, sorry, 2000 views, 2000 views, maybe like a hundred subscribers or something small like that. And then, from January until now of 22, we've published 700 videos, th generated 34 million impressions, uh, 2 million views or something. Like, it's just like the numbers are exponentially higher, but we're not anchoring on the data. It's, it's all wrapped up in the whole idea of where to spend time, how to double down, and going like, it's back to that, hey, I couldn't find any content. If somebody said, hey, I like, no, I actually haven't had a chance to check out anything, the question is like, well, how, how invested are you in what we're doing? Because it's pretty easy to, it's not like a single blog post that exists and you're like, well, yeah, I understand why you haven't found it. So that's one question. The second question is, um, asking people, and this does tie into growth, like what are some things that we're not doing well based on what you've seen and being transparent enough to go, this might not feel good, but I want you to dunk on us super hard. Like we're doing a bunch of janky things. So framing it, like we know we're doing yeah. janky things. Just like tell us all the stuff that you didn't like. Cause it's kind of funny. There's a lot of jank. And like, sometimes people might not feel comfortable, but just doing that, if somebody starts to go like, yeah, it's like, look at your site. It's, I mean, our <laughs> website right now is yeah. super, super janky and super broken. We know we have to fix it, but it's just like making a conscious choice to say like, we'll deal with that later. Um, so it's like having those conversations is always fun. So I want to dive into that, like doing that later, deciding when to attack initiatives, um, deciding how to run, you know, tests um, and projects. And, you know, I think one thing just just for my time to shine and show you that I did consume the content that you've put before, um, you mentioned in one interview that the key thing to remember is that growth can't be extrapolated as a single playbook from sector to sector and type of company to type of company. So, you know, this is what you were mentioning earlier that you cannot run a consumer tech company like how you can run levels as a product. Um, has, has, you know, have the principles of how you run tests, initiatives, initiative handoffs, um, has that all remained the same or like, does the entire playbook change from company to company? Two, two parts of the question. So one is around the coordination and the way that we work as a company, like, does that hold the same? And I would say in general, no, because every company is so different. So there are some general principles um, that people can follow that are helpful. Now, everyone has to subscribe to that. That being like, 
we're pretty deep on asynchronous communication. So uh, like I, I won't even look at um, email or threat. We use threads like instead of Slack. Yesterday, I don't even think I logged on until maybe 9.30 p.m. to be like, yeah, I'm going to look at what's happening. There's no like, where did the guy go, right? Like no one thinks that. So that helps people do, the reason I didn't was I was doing deep work. I was um, working on a memo because we do a lot of long-form written communication. So the way we collaborate, like it is different from company to company. There are some companies, uh, GitLab being one of them, Darren Murph is a good friend of Levels and he's head of remote at GitLab, but they've got a lot of these async principles. So some of them are transferable, but what happens is like if somebody goes to a new company and they're like, hey, my hand's in the air, like let's do this thing. And everyone sort of nods and then they're like, man, where's Blaine? Like, I haven't seen his green dot for at least 11 minutes. You know, it's just like these weird things. It's like that doesn't work. So it only works if everybody subscribes to it and you have to reinforce these cultural things over and over. The question about the playbook, there are some general principles like, hey, using, um, I mean, you can use a bunch of different data analytics platforms, but whether you use GA or whether you use post hoc, doesn't really matter what you're using. Um, general principles like let's use data to look at the funnel that's a general principle but the actual playbook of like let's try to target people uh let's use skip end levels right now like one of our huge whatever our biggest plays is around creating deeply researched uh scientific or editorial content pillar content that is driven from blog posts long form written content pretty academic but it's amazing as far as driving traffic to our site. And there's a lot of considerations like people who read, we've got ultimate guide to metabolic health and ultimate guide to glucose and omega threes and go on and on all these articles. People who read those spend a lot of time consuming that content. The people who consume that content have a higher propensity to actually convert. We start to know all these things. Let's say we ran that playbook with Skip and we're like, hey guys, I got this idea. And we start to like, it's to that soundbite where not even sure what episode that's from, but you extrapolate that for and you're like, hey, this worked really well in the past. Let's spend a whole bunch of money and a whole bunch of time on creating long form content about uh, on-demand marketplaces or restaurants or whatever it is. And it just falls flat. That's a really bad strategy because it's like back to what you're saying. It's like you trust the person and it's the hammer and the nail. It's like they just try to hammer the playbook. So what you got to do is like adapt and say like content worked really well for us. What type of content could work well for this other unrelated business? If we took one of the things that was a huge catalyst for awareness for us with Skip was uh, like the window stickers, which like everyone does those now, but we did those everywhere. Um, and it was, there was a lot of brand recognition. So people would see in different markets and they'd be like, oh, clearly that restaurant has skip. And it becomes like nodes in the network become uh, pretty dense pretty quick when you see those things everywhere. Could we ever like granted it's not a marketplace, but could we ever plaster a city with some like out of home type media and go, Hey, look, everyone knows levels and now they're converting. It's like, that just wouldn't work. So yeah. that's the key of having a book of plays and saying like, we tried this thing. It kind of worked in this way. What can we take from it and apply it to this new thing? And sometimes you do them like sort of you steel man things yourself in your mind and your or you might check with Tom, right? Someone JM, someone that you work with closely and go like, it seems ridiculous to me, but like, is there something here? And then people be like, no, nah, that's like ridiculous. Like, do not do that thing because you're just trying to like hammer the same thing home all the time. So it's always taking a book of plays and say, what can we what can we try? What can we extract? What can we like remove and test, test, test? And then how do you go after handing off what does work? Like, mm. you know, something did work. Let's say Ben is a team of one. Ben is like throwing shit at the wall, seeing what sticks. Something stuck, but Ben is supposed to grow as a growth manager. He's not here to like put stickers and be going around all the restaurants around the US. Um, so how do you hand off an initiative? Yeah, love love talking about this. We talk about it all the time because it is uh, innate to our culture and super super important. Is the idea of we've got we use the like DRI directly responsible individual model so that it doesn't matter. Like I'm DRI right now of these mission patches. Like literally In the these podcast. things. 
literally these things, the embroidered patches. For anyone who's listening to this, it is like an embroidered patch that says Levels Team 2020. We do them. The, the insight came from Josh Clementi, who's uh, one of the co-founders, and he spent time at SpaceX. And so they would get them for all the different flights that they were on every time they would put something into the air. And um, so we've taken that. So it's like that is like an IC thing that I'm a DRI of. And I could also be a DRI of like growth, let's say. And I'm just using that as like these loose examples. What we do as far as handoffs go is some things, once you get things operationalized enough, or maybe it's no longer a good use of your time because there's someone who's better than you at that, like you hire somebody that is better than you to come in and do that, that's a great handoff. Or um, you become so bandwidth constrained, you either have to declare project debt and say like, we're retiring mission patches. We're not going to keep doing them in perpetuity. The opportunity cost of like keep keeping this like in my purview of needing to do it is too high given that like I can't pay attention to the funnel now. Like are we all in agreement, project debt? Or um, if you can't hand off internally to someone else, say Ramon is now like the new DRI for mission patches, then we've got a, a network of uh, EAs that we work with and everyone's got, we've got, roughly 15 i think we've got roughly 15 of them now and everyone has like their pool so we have we have started to ramp up eas in this could be a very long conversation but i love it we've ramped up eas in ways that traditionally you wouldn't think to use an ea so an ea the mental model is like can you schedule my calendar meeting can you like we think of these transactional things it's like constant experimentation so we're like what would it, like, we've gotten so nerdy that like keep pushing it. And this is like the non-engineer person saying this. I'm like, could we teach like the EAs to do pull requests? Like, how does that look? Why don't we get to that point? So we've actually trained up, like we've got a pool of EAs now that did not know how to edit podcasts and videos and all these things. And we're getting them to cut derivative assets for us. Cause we're like, Hey, check out this video on how to like rip videos in premiere pro. And they're like, okay. And then they do something and it might be a little janky. And we're like, yeah, if you just like tweak this, like here's where to actually make the cut. Like here's where, here are all the things. And you keep, we use Loom. So we'll just record a Loom of like us doing the edits over it. And they go back and back and back. We use it for everything. Like creating YouTube thumbnails, like name something, derivative assets for TikTok, like name, like name any random thing, podcast QA. And that is not the mental model of how to, scale time and EAs are all about scaling time. The mental model is like, well, we're going to have to hire someone. So pushing ourselves in the thinking of like what would be possible and always assuming everything is until you're proven wrong. And so the key of how to like your question around how to hand off, knowing when to declare project debt, knowing when to do a handoff internally and knowing when to scale that time to an EA so that you can open up new bandwidth to just say, Hey, I'm going to go hammer. Like uh, I'm going into uncharted territory. I'm setting off to sail out to sea and like, we're going to see what happens here. I have no idea. But what you might find is that new channel, like back to what we were talking about before frontier stuff, we're going to some new platform. I don't even know what's going to happen, but like, let's test it out and see. Let's Let's revisit in a month. So it's super fun to do that. Yeah, I love I love the EA stuff. Um, I ran my previous business entirely off EAs, and like the the thing is that you know for for it it it, it, it what's it called it implements this culture in the company of like having to thoroughly document stuff. And Loom even makes it easier now. Like you don't you know back then you used to like have to document everything. Notion and Loom make things so easy, and that gets embedded into the culture. And so um, sometimes it could feel counterproductive for more junior people or something like that. But you crank out that deep work and just document that and hand it off. Um, you're off to the races. So I, I love that. It seems like you guys have really scaled that up. Yeah, and, and reinforce it constantly. We've got even part of our, uh, we do asynchronous updates for all hands every week. But the EAs, there is like a DRI of the EAs, like it's sort of the head of the EAs, part of their team. And LJ, she does an update of how many delegations our team has done and what are some interesting ones. So we're always trying to uncover like what are ways like within the team, what are things that you've done? And for people, uh, one of the hard things actually is like people come in and they're not used to delegating because either it can feel weird, like where you're like, that's, I'm, I'm responsible for that. That can feel weird or just not knowing what to do. So we encourage people, um, 
we were talking last week, we actually, or last week or two weeks ago, we had a session internally just about um, how to think about delegation. And we don't do a ton of synchronous stuff, but we have these cafes sometimes where we'll pick a topic and just say like, let's talk about stuff um, to give people a chance to get together. Because we're, for anyone who isn't familiar, we're, we're an entirely remote company and distributed globally with people. Um, our team's at about 55 right now. But one of the things that came up in this delegation cafe was I don't know what to start with. And so the recommendation to Jason was the person who brought it up. It's like, ask an EA to see if there's a transcript for Star Wars, like something that is personal and doesn't have to do with work. Just think of things like that are random. You're like, oh, I wonder if this exists. Because what's going to happen is the unlock is as soon as you get into the habit of them being able to help you scale your time, then you start to think about like, what if I got them to check my like spam folder? What if I, you know, you sort of like incrementally go wider to the point where you're like, everyone does like my job for me. This is sweet. Now I can do different things. So it's, I mean, it's just an incredible resource and we really, really um, drill down on it and encourage people to outsource and delegate things internally every single week. And I think, Ben, what's so important about that is what it allows you to do is it allows you to kind of what you're saying earlier is throw the spaghetti at the wall, see what sticks, test, iterate and find, you know, that product market fit in that little task or whatever your small objective is. And then once you do that, then the next objective is once you've found that it works and you're able to do it is, OK, now can I hand this off um, to be able to scale my time and go find the next thing and the next opportunity to uh, lean into? So I, I really love that in terms of a framework. It's something that like we, we think a lot about, Ramona and I talk about all the time and um, bring into our businesses as well. The next question I have in terms of like how you guys have set everything up. So we said, when you guys joined, when you joined, you guys had the, um, you know, you had kind of the inbound funnel set up, you ran this, uh, the podcast sort of strategy to like scale things up that way. And you spent a lot of time investing in content and developing process around EAs. What other sort of, I guess maybe kind of, you know, flipping the question around kind of what you were talking about in terms of like an interview, right? If you were to interview someone, you'd say, okay, you have a million dollars with your budget. What would you do? Right? So like if I flip that question around on you and say, okay, we've done all these other things. What were some of the other channels uh, for growth that you were looking to unlock and kind of looking to, um, you know, continue invest in for your guys' growth at that stage? Is a question just reframing to make sure I don't go down it's more, some digression. Yeah, it's more, <laughs> no, no, it's more just like, um, you know, uh, saying that we've already had the the inbound set up. You've, you've invested in the podcast initiative. You've invested in content initiatives and process around EAs. What other channels were you in particular looking at uh, in implementing as you were in that, you know, sort of growth mindset as you continue to be? I see. So you're saying when I first came on board and then how has that evolved yeah. to some of the yeah, exploration? Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, when I first came on board, the idea was all about infrastructure. Like we, we have to build out enough infra and test like the hypothesis. It's always back to like the hypothesis. So it was, hey, the pillars are members, content, community, partnerships. Let's start throwing spaghetti at the wall against each one of those pillars. Partnerships, like Tom had that nailed. It was fine. But what do we have to do in the other ones? So community, we tested a bunch of things. We tested the like more mission patches. We did another random one, the Coke challenge. This was a community experiment to see what drinking a Coke does when you, uh, what it does to your glucose levels when you like pound it with and without exercise. Like will people see a fluctuation? These are all community initiatives. The hypothesis is we do this thing, it'll engage people, we'll do it again. Let's say we did 10 community tactics, calls and um, calls with founders and things like that. What we were trying to solve for was, is there enough interest here to bring somebody on to lead community? As opposed to making the assumption that there was to just be like, I think community is important. Like we're going to hire someone. It's like, what if you hired someone and they're like, nobody cared about community? It's like, well, it turns out people do because they're going through a health journey. So it was all about identifying the infrastructure, testing against it. And then we got to the point where we've got enough infrastructure laid. We know content's important. We know community's important. We're laying infrastructure within the infra. And so now it's about testing channels, right? Let's use content being one of them. Content, we... We're, we had an audience on Instagram. I think we're at like, I don't know, 
we're less they call it maybe like eight thousand people when I started. I think we're at one hundred and sixteen thousand as of today. Um, but we weren't active on LinkedIn. We weren't active on YouTube. We weren't active on certain platforms. And where it gets really dangerous is there's merit in all of them. There's merit in TikTok. There's merit in Pinterest. There's merit in you name it. But if you do all of them at once, you're going to do a whole bunch of nothing because you're not really learning and testing. And <clears throat> you brought up That's the, the wide versus deep. Totally. Totally. And the thing is, is, is you want to go deep, but you also want to go wide. So right now we're deeper on Instagram. Like it doesn't mean, oh my gosh, stop at 116,000. It's like, keep building an audience. But what happens if you shift some of that focus to less mature platforms? Like YouTube, we're at 26,000 subscribers as of like January, we might've been at whatever it was like a hundred. I can't remember December 31st, a hundred. And then we're like, let's put fuel on the fire. So we've grown to 25,000 over the past nine months, I guess nine months. Yeah. Um, and there's still so much upside. There's a long way to go. I mean, YouTube in itself, like we could have a whole conversation about why it's a massive platform and super important, but it's testing these different platforms. And I think when you brought it up before around product market fit and opening up bandwidth, like we're talking about scaling time to be able to throw spaghetti at the wall and test and experiment and go, go, go. Like, let's riff on this for a sec. It's like, how many startups are one distraction away from product market fit? Probably a lot. And so what's one distraction? It's trying to test Pinterest at the same time that you're trying to test TikTok at the same time you're trying to test YouTube and, 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 as opposed to just saying like, what if you figured out, oh my gosh, there's an audience on YouTube and you doubled down and you figured it out and you started to realize you're like, oh, that's the demo that really likes what we're doing and the willingness to pay is high. You keep going down the, all these things. So when it comes to what we're focused on now is like flipping that question back of, how how would we deploy capital? How would we deploy resources moving forward? It is still around exploration, but it's about doubling down until we feel that we're at a point of diminishing returns on certain platforms so that you operationalize it. It works. It doesn't mean you stop experimenting. It means that you say, I'm consciously investing less time in that thing so I can open up more time to explore this other thing. And that it's it's constant doesn't matter what platform it is, but you got to do it. And it's also really dependent on like, what's the Rolodox of ideas, the pipeline look like too, because you have to weigh out, well, let's weigh out how much deeper we can go on this versus like what we think the potential is over here. Sometimes they're probably, you know, sometimes it could be the case that the ideas that are on the pipeline, like might not be as exciting, but then all of a sudden one shows up and that's when you're like, all right, I think that one you know is probably going to have a lot more impact because we have this data point from this other one we did back in the day well regardless i think you know we could riff on this for days this is this is super um exciting stuff and and we can go deep um obviously but uh ben this was this was awesome um to have you on and and really appreciate you coming on sharing your knowledge i'm super excited for what you guys are going to build next so you know where a what's your podcast the the levels podcast um how can people keep up with you continue to learn more from you um and stay up to date with whatever levels is doing yeah so podcast is called a whole new level if you search it on Spotify or Apple or your favorite podcast player, you'll find it. But um, everything related to startups, a little bit of metabolic health and just a fun jammy podcast. If you're interested in some easy listening now and again, um, best way to keep up with levels is levelshealth.com slash blog. That's where you're going to find all the info about metabolic health. And it's it's good. like if there's one takeaway, honestly, if people can do one thing is don't dig into like what we're doing as a company. Don't necessarily dig into CGMs. Go and read the ultimate guide to metabolic health or the ultimate guide to glucose to just understand. Like we, we didn't even get into all the science stuff. Um, there's a lot. But to, just to start to open up like what exactly is metabolic health and why does it matter? It's, it is um, a major health crisis around the world and it's something that impacts us all. And so if you can start to make decisions for either yourself or those around you about the lifestyle choices we make with food, sleep, 
um, exercise, stress, environmental factors, all of these things that truly impact our metabolic health. Like it is impacting us from a healthcare perspective, trillions of dollars per year. Um, it's the leading cause of almost every major disease having poor metabolic health and metabolic syndrome. So if people can do one thing is go read one of our blog posts to just learn more about it and to tell others, because that's the only way we're going to make change in the world is if people start to truly educate themselves. So levels.link slash blog, and we would be truly grateful to check out that content. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure to link that in in the podcast uh, notes below. And Ben, just want to thank you for coming on. Really enjoyed the episode and look forward to, to seeing where you're able to take level, the next level you're able to take levels to. <laughs> nice. Appreciate you having me. Thank right, you. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for tuning in and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and a review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.